The Jerusalem Channel is made possible by viewer support. Thanks for watching. Daniel 11.32 is a great Bible promise. The people who know God will be strong, not weak, and will accomplish exploits. That means we'll do the works of the Lord. And I hope the energy and the spirit of that verse describes your life and attitude. We can be strong in the Lord and in the power of His might to finish the works that He's called us to do. Hello, I'm Christine Dark. We want our lives to be useful and to count for something, don't we? God is looking for believers who are not politically correct, but who will be willing to pay the price to be biblically correct, and who will dare to stand with the God of Israel in these dangerous days. That doesn't mean that we'll approve of all of the policies of the secular nation of Israel, not by any means. But we must be determined to fight anti-Semitism as we watch the world making the same Jew-hating mistakes that happened prior to and during World War II. Many people ask me, when did I first become involved with Israel and the Arabs? God first put Israel in my heart in my childhood. I hadn't yet met or loved the Arabs. I wouldn't come into contact with the half-brothers of the Jews, the Arabs, until I was nearly 30 years old. But like the Gentile matriarch Ruth in the Bible, the Jewish people were my people from childhood. Not because of any genetics that I know of. Perhaps there is a Jewish connection somewhere on my family tree, but I can't prove it. But the Jewish people became my people because of my earliest childhood experiences and my evangelical upbringing. One of my earliest childhood memories was when Jesus appeared to me in an open vision as the King of the Jews, and He healed me of a serious childhood illness. He said to me, You're going to be healed. He looked Israeli. He wasn't the blonde, blue-eyed Jesus like you see in so many Catholic portraits. He had dark, chocolate-brown eyes, the eyes of a Sabra, a native-born Israeli and he wore a Middle Eastern robe. His eyes were deeply compassionate. It wasn't frightening, yet it was awesome. And I was very young and shy, so I looked away. And when I looked again, he was gone. In this vision, I also recall seeing my parents in the background outside my window in a garden on a hill in the American state of Georgia where I was born. My parents' backs were bent over as they worked in the field. And many years later, when I told this vision to my mother, she said that they'd never had a garden. They were always too busy running three country churches in Georgia to have a garden. So I think the vision of my parents working in the field was a metaphor of their lives dedicated to working in the harvest fields of the Lord. One of my earliest childhood memories was also my big picture book called The ABCs of the Bible. The memory of that picture book is precious to me. I remember A was for Abraham and so forth. 
You see, the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, and David, were all just like family to me because of my solid biblical upbringing. As a child, I was so proud of the shepherd boy, David, for killing that evil giant, Goliath. And so when I spent the night with my nanny, a godly lady who lived in a white southern house on a hill, instead of taking along with me a doll or a teddy bear to make me feel secure, I took a Bible picture of David. And as I was growing up, I experienced many dreams about the rapture and the second coming of Jesus. And when I was also young and impressionable, I watched a movie on TV about Jesus. I think it was King of Kings starring Jeffrey Hunter as Jesus. And I was heartbroken about what would happen to the Jewish people because Israel's national religious leaders had rejected Jesus. Never forget that the ordinary people loved Jesus. On Palm Sunday, the masses had welcomed him. But it was the religious leaders who were jealous and had him crucified practically overnight before the majority of the people even knew what was going on. Of course, the crucifixion was all in God's sovereign, predetermined plan of salvation for the world. But after watching that movie, I went to consult with my father, and I'll never forget his wisdom. He was a man of God, a moderator of his denomination. And my father always treated the Jews with proper biblical reverence. I asked him what was going to happen to the Jews. And he didn't consign them to, to hell as so many churchmen have done in the past. He answered me very solemnly. He said, the Jews are God's chosen people and their destiny is in God's hands. My father had the same approach to God as Abraham. He was confident that the judge of all the earth will always do right. Well, after university, I enjoyed a skyrocketing career as a journalist, and my broadcaster husband became manager of the radio station of the theological seminary where he was studying. And so we started visiting the Holy Land in 1975. Like many Christians, when they visit Israel for the first time, I felt like I'd come home. This feeling of a homecoming greatly took me by surprise. I'd visited many countries, but I had never felt like this before. And since then, I've talked to many pilgrims who've all felt the same way. And so after much spiritual warfare, our family moved to Jerusalem in 1982 to open a TV news bureau. And as we lived and worked in Israel, I was again taken by surprise by the extraordinary openness of the Arabs to the gospel. In those early days of running a news bureau in the 1980s, I began to evangelize among the Arabs simply because they welcomed me with open arms. In America, I'd never experienced such hunger and openness to the gospel. So happily, I discovered it's the Muslims harvest time. Having received the baptism in the Holy Spirit in 1977, I was full of energy to win souls. And the Arabs were supernaturally open. Dreams and visions were part of my ministry with them, and this still continues to this day. In fact, the Holy Spirit is moving powerfully through the divine agencies of dreams and visions, as I've documented in my book, 
miracles among Muslims. And so, through evangelistic outreaches among the Arabs, God taught me the bigger picture of His vision for this region. I already loved the Jews, and now God surprised me by giving me an equal love for the Arabs. And love has its own power. We experienced a movable feast month by month, holding many outreaches in places like Bethlehem, Jericho, Jerusalem's old city, on the Mount of Olives, in Arabic villages like Silwan in the Gihon Spring near the city of David, in Nazareth, in Bedouin encampments, literally all over the country. We distributed thousands of Bibles. We prayed for the sick. We held open-air meetings in many villages like Cana of Galilee, and nobody stopped us. We were invited into homes, restaurants, and hospitals to hold meetings and to pray for the sick. Our mandate was the Lord's own words in Matthew 10:23. He said, truly, truly, I tell you, you will not have finished going through the cities of Israel before the Son of Man comes. In fact, I first learned to pray for the sick amongst the Arabs, who are very open to the miraculous. The first healing miracle that ever happened in my ministry was among the Palestinians. I'd fasted and prayed for a sheikh to be saved, and on the last day of the fast, he prayed to receive Jesus. And he was healed of lung cancer and delivered from smoking for the rest of his life. Hallelujah! The Lord began to send me on prayer assignments and preaching trips further afield into Egypt and in the surrounding Arabic nations, where we sometimes had favor to erect gospel tents. And somewhere along the way, I discovered the amazing prophecies contained in Isaiah chapter 19 concerning a highway that God will build in the future, connecting the three favored nations of Egypt Israel and Assyria. Well, Egypt has existed from Bible days, and since 1948, Israel has been miraculously reconstituted, and now Assyria is arising again. I felt compelled by the Lord on many occasions to prepare this highway of holiness, as it's called also in, in Isaiah chapter 35. This preparation is through prayer and prophetic acts with other team members. The promise that God made in the Torah to set the Jewish slaves free from Egypt now became his rhema word for our persecuted brethren in the Middle East, as well as for souls held captive behind the Jericho-like walls of radical Islamists. And so we often prayed and declared Exodus 3, 7 to 8, where God said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people in Egypt, and I've heard their cry by reason of their taskmasters, for I know their sorrows, and I am come down to deliver them. Well, Isaiah 19 still often dominates my conversations with Palestinians who are bewildered by the return of the Jewish people to the region. But as I explain God's vision of the Isaiah 19 Highway of Peace, this truth makes sense, and I frequently see understanding dawning on their faces. You see, God's vision is to make His capital, Jerusalem, 
to be the center of blessings in the midst of the earth. We've been actively praying and interceding for Israel and the entire region now for 40 years. In fact, for 10 years alone in Jerusalem, we held specific monthly spiritual warfare prayer meetings on just one theme at the express command of the Lord. And that theme was to believe God for the irreversible overthrow of the powers of darkness holding a billion souls captive. And it's no, it's no coincidence that I recently learned that Cairo's Evangelical Church also held revival prayer meetings for 10 years. You see, prayer always precedes revival. So keep proclaiming with me the benediction of Isaiah chapter 19. In that day, God says there shall be a highway from Egypt. Israel will be the third along with Egypt and Assyria, a blessing here in the midst of the earth. The Lord Almighty will bless them, saying, Baruch et Mitzrayim Ami, blessed be Egypt, my people, Assyria, the work of my hands, and Yisrael, my inheritance. We and other intercessors in this region are holding down the fort, as it were, standing in the gap, praying and believing God for the end-time revival prophesied by Zechariah 12.10 where God says, and I will pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem, a spirit of grace and supplication. They will look upon me, the one they have pierced, and they will mourn for him as one who mourns for an only child. I'm living in this verse. To me, it's already a reality. Until Zechariah 12:10 manifests, however, the flame for Yeshua is burning here in our ministry, even if it's a dim flickering flame by comparison to the great second Pentecost that will be ignited in the near future. That's why we call our Jerusalem center David's lamp. You see, six times in the word of God, the Lord promised Messiah's ancestor, King David, that David would always have a lamp in Jerusalem. The Hebrew word for lamp in these six verses is near which means a light or a candle. But in the English Bibles, near is also always translated as lamp. I think that means that the Messiah will always have a presence in this city, even in the interim between his first and second comings. The name David is sometimes used interchangeably for Messiah. So God is saying Messiah will always have a lamp, a light, a testimony in this city, even if presently the flame is comparatively weak. The scriptures declare that the Lord will not quench a dimly burning wick. Until Jesus returns here permanently to rule, there will be a presence here, a flame of God on Messiah's behalf. We in our ministry are a part of that preparatory flame. Every time you come to Jerusalem and participate in our prayer convocations, you are helping to fan that flame. As I said, God didn't make this promise of a flame in Jerusalem once or twice, but he promised six times to give Messiah a testimonial lamp here. For example, one of these promises is found in 2 Kings chapter 8 and verse 19, which says the Lord told David that he would always give him and his descendants a shining lamp. The same sentiment is expressed in Psalm 132, 
God promised that in Zion, he would make the horn of David to bud and he would ordain a lamp for his anointed, the Messiah. This prophecy was fulfilled when Messiah Jesus was born to reestablish the Davidic dynasty. Yeshua is his Hebrew name and he is the lamp. Jesus became the light of the world and the glory of his people Israel. Well, I've often said that revival will come to the Middle East at least three ways. Number one, through divine intervention. God will intervene and shorten the days. Otherwise, the Bible says mankind will become so destructive, especially with nuclear capability, that no flesh would be left. So God will intervene and shorten the days. Secondly, revival will come as a result of war. The coming war prophesied in Ezekiel 38 and 39 is not far away on God's prophetic timeline. And this miraculous war will surely bring about revival in Israel. Israel will be saved from a national holocaust and this will trigger a national revival. The Ezekiel war will involve Persia, according to Ezekiel 38.5, which is modern day Iran. And the third way revival will come will be through our intercession. Hallelujah. So I want to spend the remainder of this program talking about principles of intercession. Because all revivals begin in prayer and intense intercession. The best intercessors are friends of God. And intercession is being a friend of God. Isn't it amazing? that God even condescends to have friends among human beings. So I want to look for a few minutes at Genesis chapter 18. In that chapter, the Lord said, Shall I hide from Abraham what I'm about to do? This is because God planned to destroy the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah because of their great wickedness. This passage in Genesis 18 teaches us that God does hold inquests into the moral conditions of cities. And God's verdict for Sodom was judgment. They were going to be toast. God said the cry of Sodom and Gomorrah is great and their sin is very grievous, very heavy. You might ask, who was crying? Well, no doubt murders were rife in Sodom. So first of all, it was a cry of blood. You see, Genesis 4.10 informs us that Abel's blood had a voice. And Abel's voice cried for vengeance against his murderer. Likewise, the cries today of the blood of all the babies aborted on the altar of convenience have a collective voice. God also heard as well the cries of rape and sexual immorality. Look, even the word sodomy stems from this place. Billy Graham, or was it his wife, Ruth, once said that if God doesn't judge America for its sexual sins, he'll have to apologize to Sodom and Gomorrah. Well, Abraham's relative Lot, no doubt, was also crying aloud to God because the Bible says Lot was continually vexed by living in the sordid conditions there. Lot's predicament was a picture of Jesus's parable of the wheat living amongst the tares. So God told Abraham that the iniquity of those people was full and that 
he could no longer allow their abominations to continue unchecked. And God took counsel within the Godhead and he asked, shall I hide from Abraham what I'm about to do? You see, God says in the book of Amos that he does nothing except he first shares it with the prophets. Sharing secrets is one of the special privileges of friendship. Sadly, if truth be known, we have very few friends that can actually be trusted with heartaches and secrets. But God shared with Abraham because he knew Abraham's character. And like a true friend, Abraham began to reason ever so politely and carefully with God Almighty. Abraham asked, will you sweep away the righteous with the wicked? Because we know that sometimes happens. The righteous can be in harm's way because of the wicked. And that's why intercessory prayer is so vital. It's as if Abraham bargained with God. He started out praying for mercy if only 50 righteous persons could be found. And God said, yes, if 50 righteous persons could be found, he would spare the city. Notice how Abraham's prayer increased in boldness. Next, he asks if peradventure the city could be spared for the sake of just 45 men. And then 40, 30, 20, and then Abraham got down to 10 persons. After these six requests, Abraham paused in his negotiations. A whole city would have been spared for the sake of 10 righteous men. The rabbis say that this number reflects a minion. That's the 10 men deemed necessary to conduct a proper prayer meeting. Although in his intercessions, Abraham failed to save Solomon and Gomorrah. Nevertheless, at least his nephew Lot miraculously escaped by angelic help. Lot's escape is one of the foreshadowings and pictures in the Old Testament of the rapture of the church, when God will remove his bride before the time of wrath and destruction during the great tribulation. You see, Jesus said in Luke 21, 36, be always watching and pray that you may be counted worthy to be able to escape all that's about to happen and that you may be able to stand before the Son of Man. By the way, Lot's wife and daughters also escaped, but I hope you know the story. Tragically, Lot's wife dragged her feet. She looked back because in her heart of hearts, she loved the things of this world. And so she was turned into a pillar of salt as God rained down fire and brimstone. Even today, when you visit the Holy Land, there's a pillar called Lot's wife on the salty shores of the Dead Sea that memorializes her folly at Mount Sodom. So Abraham's pleadings with God in Genesis 18 is a lesson on intercession and encourages us to expect answers to our prayers that our loved ones will be saved. We must strive to have bold faith like Abraham. Let's believe Acts 16.31, which declares, Become a believer in the Lord Jesus and you shall be saved, you and your household also. Now, this narrative in Genesis 18 teaches us that God is open to entreaty. It teaches us to cherish good, honest people because good citizens are of immense social and moral worth to communities and nations. Rather than mocking upstanding Bible believers, society should be grateful for men and women of integrity 
whose very presence is like salt preserving society. Well, I hope as a result of this program that you'll do three things without delay. First of all, if you've never received Jesus as your Savior, I urgently invite you to receive Him now in your heart by faith. Remember that this Bible teaches us that Jesus died for us and was raised from the dead according to these scriptures. And He's returning soon according to these scriptures. So it's very important that He becomes the number one person in your life. Secondly, I want you to appropriate the healing power that's available in the gospel. Remember, we're not healed because we feel like it, but we're healed because God sent His Word and healed us by the stripes and atonement of Jesus our Lord. And thirdly, I urge you to prepare for the soon return of the Lord. All the signs that Jesus gave us in advance are converging and giving us a warning that Jesus will soon return. So whatever you have to do to purify yourself, do it without delay. If you're in a wrong relationship, get out of it. Ask the Holy Spirit to show you what you need to do to be ready for the second coming of Jesus. And if you have any questions or if you want to chat, we can connect on the social media. I also invite you to visit our website at exploits.tv where you can click online to receive our news and where you can watch all of our videos or read about our next prayer convocation in the Holy Land. Each day we post important news items on our website to keep you informed. So please tell your friends about our ministry. Thanks for watching and until next time, contending for the faith and praying for the peace of Jerusalem. I'm Christine Dard. Shalom. I'm so grateful to God that we can make the Jerusalem Channel available to a global audience and to you. There's so much spam in the airwaves and on the internet to distract us from what's really important. Every day it seems that there's another internet sensation, usually a pet performing silly tricks or something like that. The experts claim that our attention span for watching a video is just a minute or two. And even that needs razzle-dazzle effects with a thumping soundtrack to retain viewers' interest, so they claim. Well, that's just not what we're about. Taking God's Word seriously and explaining what the Lord is doing in this critical hour means that our videos are at least a half hour of content. And we're honored to say that over three quarters of a million people watch our free video teachings. Now, if we were a big church or a large media ministry, we would have all the necessary resources to make the Jerusalem Channel possible, but we're not. We're just a small team with a mandate to declare a biblical message and to help you understand God's heart for Israel in the surrounding nations. And because God also loves the Muslims, the Hindus, and everybody in the world, our ministry also shares the good news of saving health to all nations. Although we make do with the vital support from you, our viewers and website visitors, there's so much more we could accomplish in the critical harvest days ahead. One major goal is to offer our videos in other languages, in Hebrew, Arabic, German, French, Spanish, Hindu, Urdu, and so on. 
but that will only be possible with your help. Our ministry is tax-deductible in the United States, and we're also a registered charity in the UK, which allows us to claim gift aid on qualifying donations. We really need you to help the Jerusalem Channel continue and grow. You can make a credit or a debit card donation online at our website, jerusalemchannel.tv, or by phone. In the USA, it's toll-free at 1-888-245-2692. And in the UK, our national rates number is 300 561 Trouble zero five. Thanks so much for being a part of this end time outreach and praying for the peace of Jerusalem.